Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space. I'm really happy to have an old friend and colleague joining me today to discuss his experiences deploying to Houston, Texas in the wake of Hurricane Harvey. Rob Patel is an emergency physician. He and I were actually residents together when I was doing my training in internal medicine. He was doing his residency in the emergency department. We worked together for probably almost 12 or 13 years till I moved back up to Northern California. Rob, right in the wake of Hurricane Harvey, pulled up stakes and deployed. And he is back home safely and he is here to discuss what he saw, what he heard, what he was able to contribute, and what that experience was like during an extraordinarily traumatic time. So, Rob, thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me. So take us back a little bit. Tell us a little bit more about the way these FEMA teams are constructed that you were a part of. These uh, search and rescue teams are really meant for uh, you know natural disasters that happen on a mass scale that require very specialized equipment, uh, trained personnel to come in because the local resources have obviously been uh, completely overwhelmed. So these national teams all have kind of the same um, cache of equipment and also kind of the same personnel in terms of uh, specialists. So the vast majority of them are, are, are firefighter guys. So uh, there's search and rescue specialists. There's a uh, structural specialist to make sure that, uh, you know, if you're going into a pile of rubble after an earthquake, that, uh, that the rubble will be stable for us to kind of search into. There's dog handlers that have search dogs, communications guys, and etc. And then there's the medical side of it, where uh, the medical team manager is a doctor who, uh, you know, so we get trained along with these guys um, in terms of the search and rescue component. For the last 10 years, I've been training with these guys going into, you know, rubble piles and stabilizing patients within rubble piles and trying to figure out how to get them out and things like that. So the water rescue is one component of our of our training. So again, the vast majority of our team is firefighters. And, uh, and then there's like a doctor that goes along with them. So my San Diego team, we have six doctors in our team. And you need a lot of doctors to be able to find one guy that actually has the availability to go out for a deployment. When you join this organization and you start training and you're meeting the rest of the people that you would deploy with, is the expectation that at some point while you're a part of this team that you're going to get deployed somewhere? Or is it more like, gosh, let's train really hard, but we don't know if we're ever going to need to be used? I think the expectation and the hope is that you will train hard and learn a lot of uh, you know rescue techniques and stabilization techniques and things that you normally wouldn't do in the hospital. And I think, you know, it's just like military training, you know, you train and train, and then eventually you want to be able to use your skills that you've learned. So I think that's the, uh, that's the hope that we all have is that we're able to use our skills at some point. We don't wish natural disasters on anybody, obviously, but if something happens, we want to be able to respond. So then we circle back to this idea with a hurricane. You have that sense that this is coming. How does the alert process for you and the rest of your teams work? Do you have to kind of stand up, get ready, or is it, hey, we'll just alert you at the time? How does that process work? And then for you on that personal level thinking, do I need to get my family ready that I may have to deploy somewhere? You know, this caught me totally by surprise because I've been with this team for 10 years. And in that time, we haven't been, uh, the team hasn't been deployed. 
So I've been waiting for the call at some point, and this hurricane was coming. It, I kind of had it on the radar, and honestly, my San Diego team wasn't near the top of the list for the national rotation. But then, uh, you know, I came back from work on a busy uh, after a busy shift on Thursday, and I was sitting with my wife at 10 p.m. I get a phone call from my task force leader saying that, "Hey, Orange County is deploying to Texas right now. They need a doctor. Can you go?" So, so that caught me completely by surprise. And uh, after trying to communicate with the other doctors on my team, I figured, okay, I'm probably the only guy that might be able to deploy. So I sent out an email to my group. I said, you know, hey guys, I need, I need seven shifts covered for the next two weeks. And if I can, then this team of uh, search and rescue specialists with FEMA, we can all go out to, uh, to Texas to try to help with this storm that's coming in. Otherwise, they can't deploy without a doctor. And my amazing group stepped up and, uh, and covered the shifts for me before midnight. So the team started driving that night, and I was fortunate enough to be flown out the next morning. So it sounds like there's almost that there's two difficult conversations to have. The first one is you're sitting next to your wife on the couch. You get this call. You guys have a family. You have to turn to her and say, here's what's going on. Let's let's talk this out. Let's see what this is going to look like. And then you have to turn to your team and say, hey, I have to go do this thing. I can't do it without your all's permission and your all's agreement to back me up and, and cover the emergency department when I can't be there. Physicians are always known as being first responders. Frequently will have that sense of, wow, I, I, I need to be there. I need to be able to go and serve. But in that moment, when you have to have those conversations, how does that sort of work? How does that come together? I think my wife, she knows how important this has been to me. I, I consider this like one of the ways I, I serve my community and serve my serve my country, honestly. She knows that this has been an important part of what I've done for the last 10 years since graduating residency, that uh, I, I train with these guys quarterly and I've, I've been wanting to go on a deployment for a long time. So, and you know, when my chance came up, she stepped up even though school was starting in a couple of days and my daughter's birthday was a couple of days after that. And, uh, you know, so her schedule was going to be absolutely crazy with me gone for those two weeks. But, uh, you know, man, what a, what a amazing wife I have that you know, she was able to step up and, and do this for me. So I'm so appreciative for her. And then my, my group, I'm fortunate that my group has, we have 40 doctors and not only are the doctors at my hospital amazing, but my emergency department group is, I think, top-notch caliber people that uh, will step up for each other if somebody is sick if you know something happens we all chip in and, and step up for each other even at personal inconvenience but man seven shifts to cover you know at 10 p.m at night was a tall order but they did uh they were able to do it for me i know your group well and quite honestly i'm not surprised that they rallied but even still as you say that's still a tall order so then when you're actually rolling out, what does that process look like? How do you physically transport yourself, your equipment, your team to the area that's been that's been damaged, that's been devastated? So the expectation for the team is that once they get the order for deployment from the federal government, we are able to roll out within six hours. Six Which is hours. pretty amazing. That's fast. Yeah, which is pretty amazing because we have our... our the deployment vehicle, like the caravan was 16 vehicles long. There was like, you know, four big semi trucks and a bunch of, you know, light trucks carrying boats and trailers and all kinds of amazing search and rescue equipment that I didn't know existed. So all that has to start rolling out within, within six hours. And the guys have to be 
they have to arrive at the station and get medically screened and your all of your equipment is prepackaged and ready to go from the uh, from our cache in San Diego. So again, the Orange County team, they started rolling at uh, at 2 a.m. or something like that. And uh, I was able to fly out at uh, 10 a.m. the next morning. And I flew to San Antonio where we were going to get staged at the uh, AT&T Center where the Spurs play. Um, and I had to basically wait there until... Uh, Saturday, like late night, they arrived. So where are we on the timeline of Hurricane Harvey making landfall? Houston obviously coming under tremendous strain, extraordinary damage happening very quickly because of the flooding. Now you're in San Antonio. What's happening in Houston during that period of time? And how much information are you getting about what you all are going to be dealing with and facing? On Saturday, as as I arrive, uh, I'm I'm surrounded by all kinds of search and rescue personnel and EMS personnel and National Guard and all these different resources from really around the country, a lot of them focused from Texas, that are, have arrived in that little area there. I didn't know any of them, obviously, and uh, I'm kind of waiting for my team to show up. So we're kind of waiting there for the decision about where we're going to end up being deployed because the storm is kind of coming in at that point, And we don't really know where on the coast is it is it hitting. Is it hitting Houston? Is it hitting Corpus Christi? So San Antonio was kind of a nice a nice hub for us to uh, be able to deploy from. So once my team rolled in on early Saturday, I think it was, and they had the, the day to kind of rehab themselves and rehab our supplies, and we uh, you know we kind of bunked in for the night in the stadium, expecting to wake up at 7 a.m. on a Sunday morning to kind of decide where we're going to be deployed to, but then all of a sudden as is the case in a lot of EMS environments, you know, the lights go on at 4 a.m. Somebody's yelling, okay, we're, you know, we got to go. Somebody's calling for help right now. So all of a sudden we have to jump out of bed and pack up all of our stuff and uh, jump in the trucks and start driving to Houston. So that it was that fast. It was an alarm goes off. The, the command and control structure at AT&T Center says everybody up into your vehicles and we're out of here. Correct. The FEMA leadership had decided, okay, Houston is where the uh, you know the flooding is going to be. There's already calls for help that's happening in Houston. So, uh, okay, Orange County team and Ohio team or Nebraska team, okay, you guys start going down to uh, Houston. You got to get there now. So all of us, you know, jumped out of bed and, and started rolling out. In the world of medicine, there are definitely moments that get the heart rate up, that get the breathing rate up. Patient in front of you gets really sick someone's really angry, you've got multiple traumas that you have to deal with, you have to do a bunch of procedures. Where does this rate on that scale? Because just hearing this story, I'm feeling my heart rate go up. That idea of being <laughs> ready to deploy and then at four in the morning, it's like something out of a movie. Everybody up, get in your vehicles, we're going to Houston because they're calling for aid. Yeah, there's a lot of moments that I felt like I was in a movie during this uh, <laughs> during the time I was there. Yeah, but you know, I did have some EMS experience before this, so I kind of know that drama of like you know being woken up out of bed and jumping in the ambulance and starting going to some you know go to somebody's house, or I was with uh, our uh, local medical helicopter in San Diego during residency. So we you know we're stationed there, so we got a call and we have to jump in the helicopter and fly somewhere to uh, transport a patient to the hospital. So that's it. It's a different kind of experience though than this because. Here, there's an element of, of personal risk now because, you know, I did I did feel a little kind of butterflies in the stomach as we're rolling into Houston. It's like probably a two-hour drive from San Antonio to Houston, and it's still dark, and the, and the rain is pouring down in sheets, and you're seeing, you know, large puddles of water that slowly become very large puddles of water, you know, on the highway and as well as off the highway. 
eventually becoming, you know, communities being flooded off the highway. And that's when I, you know, started thinking a little bit, okay, this is now becoming a real situation where I have to remember that, uh, you know, the training that I've had, the safety parameters that they've set for us, the command structure, um, all these things that are meant to keep us safe as rescuers. Like, you know, I have to kind of keep these elements in my mind as we're kind of rolling into this situation now that it's going to be potentially personally dangerous. And that's why you train. I mean, that's why you double down. You said once a quarter, you're training with that same group. You're hammering those lessons home so that hopefully when you get there and you're driving into a flooded city, that you have something to fall back on to keep you grounded and hopefully help keep you focused and most importantly, safe. Yeah. And it was a, it was a funny experience because yeah, you say you train with these guys. So I've trained with my San Diego guys. So I know a lot of the San Diego task force. The, this is the Orange County task force. I knew none of these guys. So wow. it's, it's this whole new group of people that I'm, I've just met and uh, honestly formed this brotherhood with over this, you know, 12 days that I was there. Uh, I, I, I got so close with these guys and I have so much more respect for what they do on a daily basis outside of FEMA than I did before. So you came in so from was, sort of the northwest, right? San Antonio is just to the northwest area of Houston. Is that right? Right. I went to medical school in Houston, so I remember that city well. We made the the occasional trip out to San Antonio to have some fun. When you're rolling into the city, is it that sense of foreboding that this is going to be really bad? Is it a sense of, well, this is rough, but it doesn't look as bad as we think? Or, hey, this is nothing compared to what we thought we were getting into. This looks like it's not going to be a big deal. You know, you just have no idea because it's dark and the wind's blowing and the rain's pouring down. And uh, I'm thinking to myself, you know, I grew up on the East Coast, so I've you know experienced some hurricanes and hurricanes come in various strengths and categories and, uh, you know, some are not so bad. So you don't really know what to expect. Is it going to be something that's something that's not such a bad experience or is it going to be like a Katrina level kind of disaster? Yeah. So we just didn't know on the way over there. So now you arrive in the city. So take us into the city with you. When you first get there and you guys park the vehicles and get ready to work, what were the first things that you were called upon to do? Where was the need the greatest? We were told to deploy in a, in a certain area. I don't know Houston uh, well at all, but as we were driving there on the, uh, on the 610, uh, it quickly became obvious that the, uh, the highway itself was flooding and was going to quickly become impassable. We were not going to be able to make it to our destination. And as we were kind of slowing down, the, you know, the traffic is just thinning out, thinning out until there's barely any, any cars coming by anymore. And then, you know, as we're driving around these huge lakes on the, on the highway, trying to get through, we see the community next to us. The water's already, you know, up, you know, uh, uh, above street level and up on people's lawns and, uh, and, and getting higher over there. And as we look a little bit further down, the water's even higher than that in certain other areas of the community. And that community was called Bel Air. So I guess they communicated with the FEMA leadership who said, okay, we'll just put in your boats right there and, uh, and start your operations. So it was kind of a, kind of a sudden thing. So all of a sudden we just kind of stopped our trucks and rolled down this, this 20 yard exit ramp and, uh, started our operations off the exit ramp. So we stopped our trucks and we we got into these uh, dry suits, these uh, fancy suits that keep you basically dry from neck to toe, putting the boats in the water. And then uh, the search and rescue guys now are starting to go out into the community to kind of get a sense of what is happening, who's in danger, and uh, what needs to be done. As the medical team manager, I'm responsible for mainly taking care of the rescuers. That's my primary kind of focus because, you know, the rescuers need to rescue people and they need to be functional and, uh, and able to, to do their jobs. So I have to keep them in operating order. 
and then I also take care of any any people who are evacuated from the uh, from the floodwaters. What sort of things were you seeing as your operation started? What sort of damage? What sort of issues were you finding, both for the rescuers and people that they had rescued? What were the what were the crises that your team had to face down and and work to overcome? So the first day, honestly, it wasn't wasn't that bad. The first day, the water was up to people's kind of doorsteps or a little bit, you know, maybe like a a foot inside of their homes. In the immediate area that we were in, there was other areas that that seemed like the water was much higher. We were expecting, honestly, the death toll to be much higher in Houston, and thank God it wasn't. So I guess those people must have gotten out before the water got really high in their neighborhood. The area that we were in, we were doing a lot of kind of 911 calls, like elderly people or people with young kids that were honestly a little bit concerned about staying in their homes as the water was expected to continue to rise. We'd be going out in boats and finding the address and putting people in our boats and bringing them back to the highway, which was amazing to me that uh, our rescue point was the highway. So we'd bring back people back to the highway, offload them there, and uh, between all the good Samaritans that would take people away to, you know, local shelters, um, as well as these, you know, National Guard, you know, large trucks that would truck people away. They all ended up disappearing somehow. They went somewhere, which was great because wherever they went was better than where they were before. What is that sense of connectivity like? You mentioned obviously with your team, but when you're helping to evacuate a family that's at fear they're going to drown if they stay in place and you're right next to them and you're helping set them on their way, as you say, to some any place better than where they are. That's got to be a very unique emotional position to be in next to another human being. It is. I mean, as, you know, as, as physicians, we, we kind of get a sense of that same connection. Like there's somebody that you've never met before is now putting their their life or their wife's life or their mom's life in your in your hands and they're they're have that implicit trust in you because you have that MD next to your name. So I think, you know, as doctors and firefighters and rescue personnel, we all kind of have that same uh that same uh, experience in the past. And this is just, you know, another level of that that, you know, these people are putting their trust in you that okay, I'm trusting you to get me and my family and my pets out of my home and, and to safety. After the whole experience was over, I kept thinking to myself, like, why Why did I enjoy this so much? Why was this such an amazing experience for me? And I was thinking about it and thinking about it. And then I kind of realized that in, in the emergency department, you know, we help people every day, but we truly save people, you know, save people's lives maybe once every couple of weeks or once every month or something like that. And that rush of adrenaline from actually saving someone's life happens and it's not as frequent as a lot of us would like honestly but here it was dozens of times a day a lot of these people might not survive by tomorrow if we didn't get them out of there so it's just this constant adrenaline rush for days that uh you know that the waters were rising i think is what made this experience so amazing for me and where did you realize that you had to settle in for the long haul that this wasn't a 24 or 48 hour operation like you say the waters just kept rising at what point do you say do I have to pace myself? Do I have to think about how I'm going to take care of myself so I can have enough endurance to get through this? Because this is going to take, this is not going to be a 24 hour thing. This is going to be days. You know, there wasn't, there wasn't much uh, thinking about yourself. And that's one of the things Hmm. I admire about the firefighters so much is that they don't think about themselves. There's no selfish behavior. Like if any work needs to be done and somebody calls for two guys to lift a boat, 10 guys show up. Like every, every task is immediately attended to by more people than are necessary. 
any dangerous situation, everybody wants to get in there to be able to be the guy that, that does it. So, I mean, it's just this amazing mentality of teamwork and brotherhood that they have that, you know, I just kind of blended into and just kind of emulate these guys. One interesting thing about our experience was that we settled in our, uh, our base of operations probably about, you know, 20 miles back. And then we started our forward operations, but then we were not able to get back to our base to resupply and, and change out guys for about 72 hours. So we were living out of our 48-hour packs for, 70, for 72 hours on, you know, fire station floors and, you know, wherever we can find a place to sleep, you know, high school gymnasiums, things like that. So that was another cool experience for me. We live our comfortable lives here. And, uh, and, and to get that experience was, was, really, was really great. So you've done that co- idea of that comfortable life. And, you know, we alluded to this at the beginning that really at the drop of a hat, you separated yourself from all of that at one level. And then the next level is all of a sudden you're cut off and you're, you've got your own rations, but you don't know when you're going to get resupplied. In that time period, was there anything that you missed? Was there anything that you thought about? Boy, I wish I had X, obviously food, water, shelter, but beyond that, the common perks, you know, the, the good Wi-Fi access, the laptop, was there anything like, man, it'd be great to have that. Or was it more of, I'm here, I've got what I need and I'm ready to get the job done? No, it was more of, you know, I want to get back to the action. That's, that's the mentality that huh. all, the, all those guys have. That's the mentality that I have. And, uh, you know, and the mentality is, okay, I'll make do with whatever supplies that I have and, uh, and, and make it work. So, yeah. So the first day was, you know, again, those water rescues and uh, I was able to go out on some boats and uh, help some people back to, back to the shore and sorry, back to the highway. <laughs> um, to get rest the shore, I know. Yeah, it's um, amazing. To get them out of their flooded homes, and uh, you know, there's a lady that uh, wouldn't leave without all of her feral cats that she keeps, you know, keeps in her house with her, and the water's up to her ankles. And one of those kind of moments where I'm, I'm in this lady's house wrestling with a cat while my partner is looking for a crate to put the cat into <laughs> to get this lady on the boat because she wouldn't have come on the boat without her cats. And it's one of those moments where, you know, you kind of reevaluate everything that you've done in your life. <laughs> That's definitely the scene in the movie <laughs> where the, 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 the crowd gets a little bit of comic relief in this extraordinarily tense and stressful movie because that is that is surreal. You can't make something like that up. Right. So, uh, so I was fortunate that I had both of those experiences of, uh, you know, not just I, I got to play the search and rescue guy going out on boats and pulling people out of their homes. But I also got to do a lot of interesting medical care, like decision pathways that we never have to experience as, uh, as doctors in the hospital. So take us down one of those pathways, because in the emergency department at the hospital you work at, you have every resource at your disposal. You guys do cutting edge stuff that's not done in every emergency department. And you deal with a very high level of acuity all the time. But now, as you say, very, very different decision-making pathways with a very different palette of resources in front of you. Take us down one of those decision pathways that you had to deal with in the moment. So it was really that first 72 hours of rescues where we did the brunt of our work as the water's coming up. And the first couple of days, uh, this, the second and third days were in an area, I think, north of Houston called Kingwood. Beautiful neighborhood, beautiful homes, amazing community. The first day that we were in Kingwood, the water was high, probably probably waist deep, maybe chest deep, and flowing. So there is some danger in that, but there wasn't that much need for medical attention for my guys or the evacuees that we were pulling out. So just to give the rescue guys a break, I would also go out on boats and go out on these, you know, on the on Cajun Navy airboats, which were which were awesome. <laughs> 
to uh, go into neighborhoods and uh, and just you know pull up to somebody's uh, front door in a boat and knock on the door and say you know folks it's, it's time to go and uh, it was kind of amazing this uh, there was a lot of kind of cognitive dissonance there because you knock on doors and people will say oh no you know we have our electricity we have plumbing we can watch TV we'll be okay you know I had to tell a lot of these people that uh, well look you know the water is expected to rise another six feet so you're not going to have electricity you're not going to have plumbing you're going to run out of food and I'm not sure if or when any rescuers are going to be able to come back to this neighborhood. So who knows how long you're going to be upstairs, if you have an upstairs, before anybody gets back here to rescue you. So so with that in mind, a lot of people were able to you know, make the right decision and, and, uh, and leave their homes. So uh, I think in general, if someone's pulling up to your you know, front door in a boat to try to evacuate you, you should probably, uh, <laughs> you should probably leave. So, so that was the that was uh, day two in Kingwood, and then day three, my second day in Kingwood. Now the water had gotten much higher, and now it was a uh, now it was really kind of dangerous situation for uh, water rescues because uh, there was one uh, one boat of uh, Good Samaritans that were out in their private boat that uh, that did you know take on water in their boat, and I think four or five of those rescuers died. So at that point, it was it was a little bit too dangerous for for guys like me who who play rescue specialists in uh, you know on TV to actually go out there. So the rest the real guys were going out there just doing all the rescues. And amazingly, there were tons of just private people going out with their you know with their little motorboat or their fishing boat uh, out into the community and pulling people out. My es- the es- estimation was that uh, our FEMA teams uh, there was us and I think one more FEMA team in that neighborhood. We pulled out probably 25% of the people, 75% were these private guys and, uh, and, uh, Cajun Navy bringing people out because they, they just had so such a huge volume of boats going in and out, taking people out, which was amazing to see. So during that day I had to, I kind of set up a little kind of medical area at the, uh, Kingwood community center, which was just on the edge of the, uh, of the, uh, floodwaters. And, uh, during the day, you know, you could see the water rise from, you know, where it was just at the base of the tree outside. And now it's, you know, a foot higher on that tree later on. And the water's just coming up. Initially, we had to kind of make our way into the community center, which was closed and get in there and set up our little kind of area. So it was just kind of me and one and my, and my medic, the other part of our medical team. And then I had two nurses from the lo- local community that ended up being invaluable to me throughout the day. One was uh, uh, an experienced ER nurse, so she knew how to run things in the area because there were hundreds of people that are coming off boats and they would come through the community center just to kind of get checked out before they moved on to the local shelter, which was the uh, middle school in the area. But then, you know, then the power goes out and you still have all these people that are coming through wet and cold. And and then the, uh, I think it was an assisted living facility that's in the water starts getting evacuated as well. And now I have boatloads of cold, wet, older people with medical problems being dropped off in the community center. And that was kind of an amazing experience because we kind of joke about that in the emergency department sometimes. It's and this was actually happening. the screening there. exams you've ever had to do. Yeah. I was thinking about it while I was there because, you know, my normal decision path- pathway in my hospital is admit or discharge. That's basically it. Here, my decision pathway was, okay, this person, I'm checking them out. Okay, can they go to the middle school, which is the local shelter, which might be underwater tonight and maybe have to be evacuated later on tonight? Or do I send them to the local hospital, which I hear is evacuating right now, but still is better place than here? Um, and how do I get them to that hospital? Because there are like maybe one or two ambulances in this little 
this little kind of island that we're on now because uh, you get so much information from different people. You don't know, you don't know what you can trust, but what we were kind of told was that, okay, we are on an island now. We're surrounded by floodwaters, maybe, you know, a mile or two square mile uh, wide island that is now surrounded by floodwaters and the hospital now there is, is evacuating as well. So, you know, there's an ambulance on our island that uh, is running around and came to us, I think, twice during that time. And, uh, you know, those guys are also kind of overwhelmed with calls and and, and, and need for help. <laughs> they were cool to work with. Uh, they weren't too happy when I went into their ambulance and just kind of raided all their supplies. <laughs> I'm like, hey, guys, I, I need this stuff here. Um, you guys can go to the hospital and, and resupply over there. And I don't think... I don't think I saw them again after that. <laughs> so get to get to the hospital via this ambulance that might not come back or get to the hospital via private vehicles because there were amazing, you know, all these people from the community that are standing there watching us and uh, anybody I just pointed to, I'm like, hey man, can you take this person to the hospital? And the answer invariably was yes. Like every person will do anything I ask them to in that situation, which was so cool to see. Was this the most precarious point over the course of your deployment or was there a time where you felt this is really unstable and everybody's safety is at risk, including the team. Where was that moment where, or what did that moment ever happen? Where I said, this is, this is uncertain and, and dangerous. This, I think this was the point because again, the water's coming up. It's been pouring rain for three days now. And this community that we were in yesterday now has feet more flood water than it did yesterday. And I'm not sure how much higher the water's going to get. People are walking around. There's information floating around. You don't know the accuracy. Someone tells you, some bystander tells me, oh, yeah, the, the dam that's upstream of us has now burst. And now you're thinking, oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. This is going to be another <laughs> six feet of water that's going to be coming our way. Well, okay, we'll deal with it if it comes. So there's a lot of uh, information, misinformation that, that I get. I have to, I'll pass it on to the guys that are higher than me in the, in the chain of command and uh, let them kind of sort out what needs to be done with it. But uh, from my point of view, just that that medical care was uh, was really cool to experience because you know again limited resources. Okay, you're having a flare up of your emphysema. I'll give you a nebulizer here, but now I got to get you out of here. I probably can't send you to the community center. I'm sorry, to the uh, middle school where the shelter is. I got to send you to the hospital. There's no ambulance here. So one of my nurses, I, uh, I put her in a private vehicle with this guy who's wheezing and having a nebulizer with my one tank of oxygen. I had to tell the nurse, I'm like, you have to bring me this tank of oxygen back because this is the only one I have. There was a few patients like that. I had a guy with had a seizure on the boat on the way in into my community center. I had a lady, unfortunately, on hospice that came in to my community center. And now I have to make decisions for this poor lady that this is a very resource poor environment. Do I use an ambulance on this lady who's on hospice? Do I use my oxygen for this lady that's on hospice? Because these are resources that I'm, are now unavailable for other people that are coming in. So that was some difficult decision-making as well. That's an uh, extraordinary responsibility, an extraordinary place to to find yourself over the course of the days and weeks as first the situation starts to stabilize and then you get to come home and now a little bit of time has passed. Where are you with processing all of that That's that stuff, that emotional, physical drama. I think it was hardest when I first came home because you miss the camaraderie and the brotherhood of of being around these guys that I've gotten to know so well and you joke around and, you know, they're just awesome guys to be around. And as well as tools and trucks and boats and all these (laughs) things that are kind of fun to play with. 
coming back to normal life here where like it's like nothing happened here in California. That took a little processing for me. I literally got off the plane, came right home, changed and went to my, you know, help up at uh, my daughter's soccer practice. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think initially it was hard to kind of get back into the swing of things, but as I've been here, you know, I'm back, uh, I'm back into my normal, my normal mode. So and how long were you deployed in, in the Houston area for how long was your total stay? So the total deployment was 12 days. So I think wisely FEMA keeps a lot of these teams still in the area deployed um, a lot of us are now, you know, the water is going down and uh, for the last, you know, for the last probably week of it, a lot of it is, uh, you know, okay, well, stand by in this area in case, you know, in case the need from the local resources to, uh, to have some backup for, for more rescues and more evacuations. So the last week, last few days, there was, you know, there was a lot of sitting around that happens, I think, on any kind of deployment for, for this kind of thing. Towards the tail end when it, things had started to stabilize a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, eventually you get the order to demobilize, which is kind of a relief at that point because you're like, okay, we're not doing a whole lot at this point. It's time to go home. So I think we were all happy to go home with the thought that, okay, Irma is rolling into the Caribbean in the next one or two days. Who knows what's going to happen with that? And did you guys get plugged back into the rotation with Hurricane Irma or was that delegated to other teams? So then they went down, down the rotations. So the San Diego team, actually my team, got deployed maybe to Harvey a couple of days after I was there with the Orange County team. So the San Diego team was in uh, Texas. And uh, by the time they got back to San Diego after being demobilized, they got the order that, okay, time to go to Florida. So they went straight back to Florida. They've been there since. It's so interesting, as you were saying, you demobilized, you were able to come back home, and you re-entered normal life immediately. No fanfare, nothing, just, hey, this is just what we do. Is that the mentality that the rest of the team and the volunteers that want to join? Is that what you talk about that, hey, this is, we, we're doing this because of a sense of purpose. There's nothing else that's going to happen because of this. How does that mentality build? I think it's part of doing the job for firefighters because these guys put it, you know, put their lives on the line every day that they're, they're going to work and they come home and there's, you know, no fanfare for them either. You know, they're going into burning homes and, and, pulling people out and, and rescuing people and uh, you know who are, who are going to die so I think these guys they do this every day this is this is built into their personalities that uh, you know nobody's throwing a party for them for rescuing a bunch of people you come home back to your normal life and uh, you know I got to experience that as well it's the most fascinating thing and I think one of the more underappreciated parts of being a first responder is that there is no fanfare and that when the moment comes to recognize and to celebrate, we should take it because as you say, they're in the burning building and then it's soccer practice and that's not the normal human experience. That's true. I think to a man though, I don't think any of these guys are doing it for accolades or for to go on speaking engagements with their friends who do podcasts or things like that. I think to a man, these guys are doing this because that thrill of helping somebody in their most dire time of need and being able to do something for them is just such a compelling force inside of us that, you know, it's, it's its own reward. It's an amazing thing that you all have that desire and that ability, but at the same time, myself and everyone that's hearing this, I'm sure is very grateful that you did take the time to come on the show and tell us about this, because if nothing else, it's things that we can learn from. It's things that we can internalize, but also just try to understand a little bit better about what we were seeing on TV 
and what happened to one of the most important and largest cities in the United States, and unfortunately happened again just a couple weeks later in Florida. Clearly, it was an extraordinary experience for you, and I'm very grateful that you came on to talk about it with us. Oh, thank you, Mark. One thing I don't think was uh, mentioned was my appreciation and uh, kind of amazement as, at the people of Houston, like all these, the neighborhoods that we went into, the uh, the number of people that would come out to help their fellow neighbors was amazing. I mean, I have pictures of uh, like lines of pe- uh, trucks with their boats waiting to get into the water to to go help their neighbors that they don't know. And people, the appreciation people showed to us there was amazing. People would just drive up to us saying thank you for your service thank you for being here bringing us trays of food do you need a shower do you need to come to my house things like that i mean it's just amazing to see this community come together so they're they're going to be okay that's wonderful to hear that that's how so many people are able to respond at the time of a very dark crisis thanks again for coming on and sharing some of these stories with us thanks for doing what you did thanks to your whole team and the rest of the teams that went out there and to all of those who stood up to to help others it's, a, it's the right thing to do. It's a hard thing to do, but thank you for telling us about it. Oh, thanks for having me, Mark. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.